You're listening to the Rio Fernando Collaborative Speaker Series. I'm your host, Jim O'Donnell. In this series, we will explore issues of land use, water, and restoration in the Rio Fernando watershed of Taos, New Mexico. This morning, we've got two guests with us. Jim Wanstall. I work for the New Mexico Department of Agriculture. I am the uh, state noxious weed coordinator, among other things. I also work with the soil and water conservation districts in the state, helping them do programs and projects. My background is in uh, wildlife science graduate of New Mexico State University, and uh, I've been wandering around here in northern New Mexico for doing this job for about 22 years. And Hi, my name is Kenio Memmer. Um, I'm currently an undergraduate at the University of New Mexico studying environmental science and sustainability studies. In high school, I worked um, as a wetland restoration intern at the Taos Land Trust for a little over two years. And we're going to talk today about noxious weeds and invasive species and novel ecosystems and restoration and all of those sorts of things. Well, let's let's dive right in. So, Jim Wanstall, uh, you're the noxious weed coordinator. What does that mean? What is, what is a noxious weed? A noxious weed uh, is a legal term. Um, Essentially, it's dictated by the Noxious Weed Management Act, which was passed in 1998. Um, and there's a definition in there that, that says uh, a noxious weed is a, a, a non-native plant to New Mexico that is listed due to its economic or environmental impacts, negative economic or environmental impacts. So essentially, any non-native species that has negative impacts on the environment or the economy is eligible to be listed as a noxious weed. Why did we need a noxious weed law? Well, the law, New Mexico's law is not, doesn't really have a lot of teeth to it. It's not a, it's not a regulatory law. It's more of a awareness and coordination law to help bring attention to the situation. This particular species that are on that list help to coordinate efforts statewide through county, state, federal, and local governments and private landowners to try to control those noxious weeds. So essentially it was it was put in place to raise awareness and to call attention to it on the statewide level and to create that list. The list is kind of important because that list is what the federal land management agencies and the state land management agencies use when they do prioritization of treatments and and management. Is there a difference between noxious weeds and invasive species? Um, well, Noxious weeds, all the noxious weeds are invasive. Okay. Um, they may, but, but there's also invasive native plants, um, you know, that are that way for a purpose. So in other words, they're designed within the ecosystem to be invasive, to take over an area quickly, to stabilize the soil and things like that. So there's, the only difference is that, that definition, whether, it fit, whether it's native or non-native. Noxious weeds are invasive by nature. So we do we have native species that are noxious? No. Okay. Be, because of the definition, it has to be a non-native species to be a noxious weed. Remember that noxious okay. the term noxious weed is simply a legal term uh, defined by the Noxious Weed Management Act. Why are why should we worry about invasive species? Why is this a big deal? I think we we talk about this a lot at the Taos Land Trust and at the Rio Fernando Collaborative, um, and it we we do hear about it often in in the news and in um, uh, and different places. Why why are invasive species a big deal? 
in Taos specifically, so on the Taos Land Trust, there are like 13 species of invasive plants or ones that we consider to be invasive weeds. Weeds is pretty much just like an undesirable And you mean plant. at Rio Fernando at Park? At the Rio Fernando Park, yeah. And then in Taos as a whole, there's a larger number of them. Um, I worked primarily on the Rio Fernando Park, but these plants have negative impacts, um, including harm to animal, animals, the devaluation of land. Um, it slows or prevents the growth of agricultural crops. There's a multitude of negative impacts that these plants can have. And that's why in Taos and at the Taos Land Trust specifically, we're concerned about managing these plants. I think that's... Um, and then along the Rio Fernando, there are negative impacts associated with the river that then go on to harm the further the ecosystem further. What are some of those negative impacts? Um, well, specifically Russian olives, which you have right. on the Taos Land Trust property. Um, they reduce flora and fauna species in the riparian zone. They can harm wildlife habitat by altering the food regime. They can reduce the availability of nutrients to native species and overcrowd the stream banks. Um, Russian olives and tamarisk, they also take up a lot of water away from native cottonwoods, um, and they ca that can leave the water to be um, salinated, so there's too much salt in the water, which can then harm other plants and animals along the river. And, Jim, you want to add in yeah. on that? Yeah, I think your original question was, what, why, do, why should we care about noxious and invasive species? I think Kineo touched on on that, that really it's these species are non-native, first of all. So they're from uh, Eurasia and Asia and all, throughout the world. They've been imported for various reasons, whether they be for forage or, deck, or ornamental plants or stream bank stabilization. But nonetheless, they're not a part of the native ecosystem that exists here in New Mexico. So those plants, just like when you and just like, for instance, in the, the islands, I was in Guam for a long time, and uh, we had the highest population of snakes in the world there. Um, and those snakes weren't native. They came from the Philippines. Uh, Guam had no snakes. And so these snakes took over. Um, first, they killed off all the ground-nesting birds. Then they moved up into the trees and started killing the tree-nesting birds. So... Uh, several species, the Guam rail being one of them, are now extinct from that ecosystem. Well, that's an invasive species. It's just not a plant. So you take that same idea that these plants were brought into New Mexico and other parts of the United States. They're not native to that ecosystem. So there's no competition. So like Kineo mentioned, the salt cedar and the Russian olive are very aggressive, and there's nothing, that's, there's nothing within the ecosystem to help control them. So basically, they, they are aggressive, they take over those ecosystems, and they dominate them, forming monocultures, which, which gets rid of and outcompetes the native habitat, the native uh, flora and fauna that, that constitute that ecosystem. So there are ecosystem impacts. Um, you, you gave a great example. I know it was from Guam, but we have similar issues here sure. where, where invasive species actually cause the extinction of a, of a native species. Okay, so, so beyond the ecosystem impacts, or I guess these things are tied together, do we see economic impacts from the invasive species? Sure. I mean, you talk about agricultural impacts, um, that's definitely an economic impact. So if you're, if you're trying to grow alfalfa or pasture grass um, and there's an invasive species that is out-competing that plant, well, that, that causes reduced uh, crop production, uh, 
increased cost of inputs to try to control whether it be manpower or fertilizer or herbicides to to try to control that plant. So that's an economic impact. It costs money out of the farmer's pocket. Um, so there's that part of it. There's also the economic impact of trying to, you touched on it earlier, trying to restore those ecosystems. That's a huge economic impact to try to, you know, there's time and manpower and all the things go into trying to control those over a long period of time. So there's definitely economic impacts. There could also be a human health impact. So having having invasive species along riparian zones can cause to further erosion into the river. And so with like the Rio Fernando, it flows into people's properties. That resource becomes, it could be become polluted. And then there's also some talk toxins that are emitted from certain plants. So those can also get into the stream bank and into the soil. And then if you try to grow crops in that area, that can get into people's food. And so it can be beneficial to human health also to get rid of these or manage these plants. What are some of the, what are the conditions that allow invasive species to thrive in certain areas? You know, I'm just thinking if you've got a healthy native forest or native grassland, native uh, riparian system, what conditions allow these invasives to move in and take over? Well, what I've found is that invasives survive in dry or shady conditions, typically conditions that the native plants have died off or can't thrive in. So on the Rio Fernando property, the park property, for example, um, the land was abandoned for 50 years. And so the soil, the soil health was degraded and the ground was compacted and dry. And that allowed a lot of the thistles and invasive plants to thrive where a lot of the native plants died off. Um, and then along like ditches along the side of the road where there's a lot of erosion and pollution, a lot of the invasive species can also thrive in those conditions. Also, I would, and I know this from talking to you, Kenyo, that at Rio Fernando Park, part of that, when the when the river was straightened mm-hmm. uh, and the wetland drained out, the conditions were created to for some of the things like teasel and, and, and other things to move into that area that was a, that had dried out, that had been mm-hmm. wet. So, the Rio Fernando stream was, when it was straightened, that caused the wetlands to not um, refill as well. And so the, when the ground used to be saturated with water, it then became dry. And then that led to the drought conditions um, and the shady. Uh, when the when the Siberian elms um, also grew on the land, they led to a lot of shade on the ground. So like ground cover and that that's where a lot of some of the plants grew in in that area. Some of the invasives moved into mm-hmm. those areas yeah. also. Jim. She covered it well. It's it's like I said. It's uh, these plants are are you mentioned invasive versus noxious. They're they're super invasive, uh, and they will grow in places that other plants, natives especially, will not grow. I mean, places where you you would look out across a in southern New Mexico, across a caliche field with no no topsoil at all, um, and there's African rue growing in that caliche field. So their ability to to ha- inhabit those sites that are uninhabitable by, by native plants, um, they get a foothold there, and then once they're once they're established there, then that seed source is established, and they can move, you know, out from that spot. So that's that's one way they get established. Okay, and so so we're talking about degraded systems, um, uh, systems that have been. Um, torn up or worked over you mentioned roads and 
plowed fields and things like this. So these these disturbed systems are prime habitat for invasives to move in ahead of natives. Correct. Disturbed sites are the preferred sites. Um, if if they're if you're going to look first someplace, it's a disturbed site. Um, Kaneo mentioned the roadsides. Um, obviously, there's a lot of disturbance. There's mowing. There's work on the road. Things like that. That that disturbed site is is open for invasion by these these species. So, are all invasive species bad? So, invasive are all invasive species bad? No. Um, so, you're talking about an invasive species. I mentioned earlier. There's native invasive species. So, that invasive quality is is functional. It's it's a part of the ecosystem. So let's just use, um, let's just use a f the forest for an example. There's a forest fire. Um, there's certain species of tree, gambles oak is one, and aspen are another that are aggressive, and they are designed to move in after a fire and populate, repopulate that area, hold the soil in place, and then progressively over time, uh, the successional stages take take place and other species move in and the site moves from an early successional stage to a to a climax or a mature successional stage so then the same thing happens on rangeland out here on the the, the mesa um, if you go in and disturb a site and there's no non-natives around you're going to see things like buffalo gourd that come in or squirrel tail bottle brush or other uh, perennial, I mean, uh, annual grasses, things like that, that will come in first. They're invasive, and they're invasive for a purpose, for a reason within that ecosystem. It's designed, not designed to be that way. Um, on the other, on the flip side of that, the invasive qualities within noxious weeds, um, are they all bad? I would say, in my job, yes. <laughs> if, if they're if they're on the noxious weed list, they're bad. Now there's. There's levels of that. We can we'll probably get into that later about control and and levels of accepting you know those non-native plants because you're probably never going to get rid of them all together. We are going to take a short break and then we'll be back with uh, with our guests. I want to come back to this question about um, invasives. Are they good? Are they bad? What works and what doesn't? But um, I'd like to jump to Kinio for a minute and have her describe the work that she did at Rio Fernando Park to investigate and assess the, um, the invasive species situation at that property. So I worked there for two years, so I did a, a lot of work on invasive species, but the main project that I did was identifying um, the harmful species on, on the property, which ones we were most concerned about. And then I used ArcGIS technology to map the invasive uh, invasive plants and noxious trees and plants on the property that we were concerned about. So I did that. I started mapping in 2018, and we did another map last summer in 2019, and hopefully they will do another one in 2020. Um, I helped to teach 
the other interns and some of the YCC crew members how to use the technology so that they could continue that monitoring process. Um, we wanted to see if the work that we were doing on the property reduced the ground cover of the invasive species or what was what was happening, look at the interactions between the different species on the property and see if what we were doing was working. Um, we were trying to avoid using herbicides right away because of the Rio Fernando, it was so close, we didn't want to risk the pollutants in the waterway. So we were trying to see if other physical and non-chemical methods of removal were working for us. Um, I also developed a document that um, included the characteristics, the impact information, and treatment plans for all 13 plants and the two invasive tree species on the property. I also general monitoring. We tried to figure out a system that worked for us where we could do it annually, taking photos, writing down observations about um, flowering times and when the plants started to grow on the property. And to step back, two things. What is ArcGIS, just for folks who don't know? Um, ArcGIS, so GIS is Geographic Information System. So ArcGIS is... Um, just a resource that has, it has like ArcGIS online and desktop where you can edit, you can make shape files and edit them to develop maps. Um, we used it for the master planning process on the property. We did an initial map and then experts came in and changed the map around to be what we wanted. But we've used it for um, mapping our easements, uh, for mapping invasive species, for mapping the waterways on our property. Um, it's a really useful resource if you're in ecology or even manage city management, different things like that. So what was the process that you that you followed in order to map different invasive species? Because you 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 took it to a high level of detail. The first step was identifying the species. So we had um, experts from NMSU come and help. They helped to teach me how to identify them. We also, Ben Wright um, has a lot of knowledge about the different species on the property. So that was the first step. Um, and then within the ArcGIS, I had to create a map, um, create different shapefile colors and different things like that. And then we used um, the Collector app on a tablet with, with a GPS and walked around the property. And I had to do a lot of editing from the office. Thankfully, the property wasn't too large and I knew it really well. Uh, but it was just kind of developing the shapefiles and figuring out what looked okay for... because the, the, So there are small patches of invasive species here and there, but there are larger pat patches... In different spots and so I focused on the larger patches kind of as a whole it was it was a really long process but by the second year we had it down pretty well is this something that that folks with private lands could could come and look at and learn from in case they wanted to do it on on their own property yes definitely um, I don't think that we have the maps that I created published on the house land trust website but if you come into the office uh, we have those maps on file and what the in, I think Angelo, the current intern, could help show people how to use the technology. I'm not sure how accessible that is to private landowners, but they could use a similar system. Okay. Like All right. We'll, I'll make sure that stuff gets up mm -hmm. on the website, which is www.tauslandtrust.org. One of the things that, um, one of the invasive species that is very dominant at Rio Fernando Park are Siberian elms. And Jim, this goes back to that the discussion of are all invasive species bad? Are all invasive species harmful? Um, the Siberian elm is everywhere and it provides habitat. It provides ground cover and shade. How do we judge which invasives we, we, we want to keep or not and how they interact with, with the existing, you know, how they are their own system? 
Right. It's up to so you're talking about private landowners to start there, then it'd be up to that private landowner to decide what you know what what their level of tolerance is right for that particular species or multiple species in many cases. So, like you were mentioning, out on that property along the Rio Fernando, there uh, they've thinned out a lot of the smaller Siberian elms to try to get sort of one stem, and there's a little forest in there. Um, you're never going to get rid of the Siberian elm. They are all over the state. Yeah. You're not going to not going to get rid of it on that site. So there's an acceptable level uh, of certain species that you're going to have to live with, and Siberian elm is one of them. There's several other. Most of the ones that are that are like that that are super difficult to get rid of are woody tree species. Um, so Siberian elm, salt cedar, um, tree of heaven is another one we see quite frequently up north. Um, so those species, um, you're not going to get rid of those. So there's some level in your mi own mind or in a management plan that you're going to have to accept the presence of those species. I think that the, the way to decide management-wise is what are the impacts that that species is having on the habitat that you want? So we're talking about riparian areas, for instance. Um, riparian areas are something are, are a habitat type that New Mexico doesn't have a lot of. Um, so they're very important. Uh, it's important to manage them, to keep them healthy. And if those non-native species are having a negative impact on that riparian area, obviously that becomes a priority. And so you may be able to eliminate them in that riparian area, um, but you're not going to eliminate them on the property as a whole. So it, it's a management it's sort of an art to figure out what we call is site potential. So you look at a site, we get a lot of grant proposals that come in. We have to go out and look at them in the field. And the first thing we look at is, okay, what's the potential of this site for rehabilitation? If, if it's an upland site with poor soils um, and there's an invasive species in there, well, you're not going to have much luck. at Once you get rid of the, 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 the noxious weed, there's going to be some other species that's going to move in that's probably just as undesirable because the the condition of the site doesn't allow for those native species that you desire to come in and start to function properly. So um, that's sort of a triage method. You go in, you look at the site, you say, what's the potential here? And then make decisions based on getting the most bang for your buck, I guess. You know, if that is the, the effort we put in here on this particular area going to pay off? Or is it just going to be an ongoing effort to control, you know, this species, you know, out into the future as far as we can see? When you go in and look at a site and, and make these decisions, do, do you have an end goal in mind where humans are not managing the system? Or is that unrealistic? An end goal as far as how we want to see the site look, say, five, ten years down the road? Right, yeah. yeah. For sure, and that and that's where you look at the potential of the site. Does the site have the potential? Does it have the soils? Uh, does it have the uh, soil moisture, uh, subsurface moisture, especially in riparian areas? Are are the key conditions there to facilitate those and give the advantage to those native plants if you help them out by stressing or controlling the non-native plants? Okay, and do you and you know, tied in with that is this idea of, you know, a, um, an ecosystem as a, as a, I guess, self-perpetuating, self-functioning 
system without human control. So is that part of the goals of that project that you would get it to a certain functionality where, where humans didn't have to keep coming back and messing with it? Right. Exactly. Okay. So that's the goal, but you're still going to have to monitor, right? So uh-huh. um, keep track of it, right? Keep track. So if you just think you're going to go in and work on it for four or five years and you walk away and everything's good, especially if, if you're in an area, like for instance, a riparian area that has other sites outside of the riparian area that have species, populations of these species you don't want, they're going to try to reinvade that site. Right. Um, and they may not be, you know, for instance, there's riparian areas I've seen that are healthy riparian areas. You walk down in there and the stream is narrow. It's got nice, uh, deep channel with undercut banks and there's sedges and willows. I mean, it's a, if you were to look into the, in a book, this is for a picture of an ideal riparian area, this would be the picture. But when you walk in there and you, you start walking in there and looking around, you see Canada thistle, which is, an, is a noxious weed. You see Canada thistle plants, individual plants. They're not, it's not a monoculture. It's not spreading. But uh, there's individual plants within that healthy community of grasses and sedges and willows. Mm. Um, so they're not thriving, but they're sort of sitting around waiting. Right? Waiting for the right conditions. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. Like a drought. Right. right. So that you see, we you have a stream area that's that's uh, like last year, and then this year it looks like this is going to be a good snowpack. We have great subsoil moisture, uh, everything's good. But then we get a poor snowpack. We don't get any runoff. Those areas that are normally wet dry out, and the area that's that has that subsurface moisture gets smaller, closer to the area where there's actually a stream. When it dries out. Well, now those conditions favor the the Canada thistle or the the non-native species, right? And they'll make some head roads there. I wanted to build off of Jim's point about surrounding properties. So, as a private landowner, you may not even be aware of what's on your property and how that's affecting your neighbor. So, your neighbor may be trying to eradicate Canada thistle or at least get it to a manageable space, but you may have that on your property, and that may be reinvading their property every year. So, I think it's kind of just communication talking to your neighbors and seeing what they're doing. Um, and that can help everybody in the area too. Well, I think that about with, with Rio Fernando park, right. As we've, we're working to, um, uh, to get rid of those invasive species Mm -hmm. in the park. Meanwhile, especially on that South border, all that land that borders us is, is chock full of invasive species. So they're just kind of waiting. Yeah. So like if you're trying to get rid of invasives on your property, you may want to reach out to your neighbors or people in your area and see what they have or what they're doing. It could just it'll benefit you, I think. Yeah, I think that's good advice. And that's the I know we're going to talk about the Taos County Cooperative Weed Management Area later, but um, that's one of the benefits of this Cooperative Weed Management Area idea is that you get people talking mm-hmm. um, you get people. We had a tour in july with over 100 and something people and took them out on buses out onto the landscape in the second half of the day and coming back i was on the bus coming back people were talking they were yeah you could wow i couldn't i can't believe there's that that much of a problem here you know they were totally unaware which is good i mean they they're aware that that there's a problem um 
some people come back and say, I wish you had never taken me out there and showed me what these plants right. look like. <laughs> I was happy when I was blind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's just dive into that. What is the Taos Cooperative Weed Management Council? What is that? So it's the Taos County Cooperative Weed Management Area. Okay. And um, basically a cooperative weed management area is a group of local entities, uh, state government, federal government, private landowners, NGOs, uh, private citizens, uh, Soil and Water Conservation District. The Tyler Soil and Water Conservation District here is sort of the sponsor of this whole idea. And basically they come together. It's not a formal state agency or anything like that. The groups come together, they sign an MOU, a Memorandum of Understanding, that says we, I, we understand that there's a problem and we agree to work cooperatively to address that problem within the defined area of the cooperative weed management area, which in this case is Tiles County. So can private landowners be part of this also? Certainly. They can. Okay. So how do people find out more information or get signed up or join in? Well, uh, like I said, the Tiles... Soil and Water Conservation District is okay. uh, is the sponsor, and you can call them at 751-0584 and ask them about how to get involved. I will say that the meetings are the first Wednesday of every month at 1 o'clock in the afternoon at the Tallis Soil and Water Conservation District office. Um, and so you do tours educational workshops, and do you also do uh, help both, I guess, public landowners and private landowners to to learn how to control noxious and invasive weeds? Yeah, we're getting to that point. Um, we are putting in for grants and things like that to try and get funding to fund a coordinator, and that coordinator would do some of the same stuff that Cuneo did, which is mapping, um, trying to find out where the problems are. Rio Fernando is one of the areas we've talked about working mm -hmm. on. Um, it would also help give technical assistance to landowners. So if they, they have a problem or if they don't even know what the problem is, they just say, what's this weed? Well, this person could go out, help them identify the, the species on their property and give them ideas on maybe how to manage that property to effectively outcompete or control those, those non-native species. So I'm going to play some devil's advocate here with you guys and just respond how you see fit. Um, you know, at, at this point, humans have influenced every ecosystem on the planet. We've moved all over the planet. We've drug our animals everywhere, um, our livestock. Let's let's say that we've uh, we've and plants. We've had major influences on the um, on, on the whole world. And whether we like it or not, and mostly by accident, we're We've, we've kind of reworked the entire biosphere on the planet. And there's, a, there's definitely a push within conservation biology and um, restoration ecology to look at um, invasive species in a different way. Um, one of the terms that, that gets used is, is this idea of novel ecosystems. These are ecosystems that have, that have come up with a mixture of different um, uh, species, both animal and, and plant from all over the world um, that come together to make a, an ecosystem that functions. It's, it's something new. Why, is, why don't we look at it that way? Why don't we look at the issue of invasive species um, and these new ecosystems that we've created 
uh, as just like, well, this is what we've got. And we, so we, sh we should run with it and let that ecosystem adapt to how the world is now. So I think that since we've created the conditions for these noxious weeds to manifest themselves, um, I think it's our responsibility to help return the ecosystem to a natural state because that's what historically has functioned the best. And that's what has shown to be the best for wildlife, for aquatic ecosystems, even for human health is the natural ecosystems that used to exist. So I think that since we created a lot of the problem, it's a responsibility to help at least try return to return it back to its natural state. Yeah. I mean, so you mentioned I didn't look old enough to be doing this job for as long as I have, but Hineo is a young person. And so it's important to understand their, how they see it. They're the ones, because you're looking at, I mean, this is, it's not going to be solved within my lifetime. Right. You know what I mean? Or even your lifetime, you're younger than I am, but Hineo and her generation ha you know, they have the technology, like she was talking about. I mean, she was in high school working with the, the different, the computer technology, the GIS stuff, all that. So they, that, their idea of of how to approach these things is really important, and I agree with what you're saying. I think, um, but it, but then it does, does go back, right? There's not an infinite amount of resources to devote to this, right? So how do we pick our battles? And that's that's really to me what it's about is is picking your battles and figuring out what what are the key pieces that of habitat, the key areas that we really need to to work on. And I think that's that's going to be the key moving forward. As far as accepting, uh, you know, these altered uh, ecosystems, that's fine within, so let's just say a plant community. Uh, you have a site, and this site is populated by all invasive, non-native invasive species. Well, that site, the plants that live there might be fine. In other words, obviously, they're there, so the conditions that are on that site are appropriate for those plants. But at number number one, diversity of those plants will be fewer because there's going to be one species out of there that's going to dominate the other, right? So your biodiversity on that site is going to be less as, as far as the plant community goes. And then you take that same site and you've eliminated the plants that, that native wildlife uh, depend on, right? So um, some of those species may adapt. If it's just nesting habitat, well, a tree, you know, a tree is a tree, right? So uh, you maybe get some nesting habitat, but as far as uh, you know, cover and food and resting places, all the things that these animals need, um, those sites that are dominated by these non-native species, especially when they're monoculture, um, don't have all those components that these animals need. So you're going to reduce the biodiversity of the plant community because you're only going to have a few plants that actually dominate the site. You're going to reduce the biodiversity of the animal community because uh, they're not going to use the site uh, as much. And then, you know, there's microinvertebrates and all the other things that, you know, within an ecosystem that populate it that may or may not adapt. So basically what it amounts to is, it, yeah, yeah, you can say that we're going to accept the, the novel, eco, is that what you said? Novel, novel eco ecosystem. Novel yeah. ecosystem. But recognize that if you're going to accept the novel ecosystem, you're going to ex also accept in turn a reduction in biodiversity and a reduction in use uh, by plants and animals. I mean, other plants and animals that depend on that ecosystem uh, for their livelihood. I think it's also important to look at it in like a broader scope, too, because there are 
There are smaller ecosystems within the larger ecosystem, so there could be small novel ecosystems that are impacting the larger ecosystem, like the Rio Fernando, for example. The Rio Fernando Park property was not in a good condition, and we didn't, the Talslanders didn't just accept the novel ecosystem, they worked to improve it, and then that further improved the downstream ecosystem and the Rio Fernando as a whole and can help other landowners and properties around that. So I think it's, you can accept, you can accept it in the small scale, but you have to realize how that impacts the larger scale also. I, I keep thinking about these these larger areas and, and changing the conditions that allow invasive species to thrive. And so if you were to give some advice, not if you were to give some advice, why don't you give some advice <laughs> to some, to private landowners say, um, that they could that they could start working with soon. How do people tackle this on their own property? One of the one of the things that we one of our goals with the Rio Fernando Park property is to use it as an educational center, like a demonstration project. That you can come in and talk to us and look around the property to see what we did to change the conditions to eventually uh, bring back a majority of species being uh, like a, a native ecosystem and dominated by native species. Um, so that's one of our goals, and we eagerly invite people to come on down and, and talk to us about that. Um, but if you were to start talking to, to, to a landowner, say, along the Rio Fernando about how to handle some of these situations, uh, what, where might people start? I mean, I mentioned it earlier, but I think the first step is identification and then using your resources. There are, the, like, I developed um, a sort of Rio Fernando Park guide to, like, our invasive species, and I used uh, USDA field guides for identifying and treating invasive species. So there are those. Um, see, we're in the Southwest, so I think when you start doing your research, make sure you search Southwestern plants so that it um, narrows your search down because there are so many plants out there and it might be hard to identify one from another so i think talking to people using your online resources that's the first step too that yeah. would be my first step exactly that guide you did was great and that's one of the things we've talked about with the cooperative weed management area and printing that but for sure inform information and education educating yourself like i said that tour so people have driven up and down the street a hundred times right going to work or going to the store or whatever and they driven by this vacant lot and they've seen these plants out there, or maybe they haven't, and they're just tooling along, getting their job done. And now when you take them out there and set, stop at that lot and say, look at this. This is, a, this is an invasive species. This is a noxious weed. And look how it's taken over the whole entire site. And it's like a bell. The, the light goes on. You know, It's like, wow, that's pretty serious. And then from there on, they're aware of it. That's the mm -hmm. that's the first step. Okay, so uh, getting aware, yes. and then mm -hmm. a, and then starting to identify what kind of species you have. Yeah. And then I think starting to develop a plan. So looking at the different treatment methods for the plants in your property, and then you have to you have to consider the multitude of plants you have. You can't use one treatment method on one plant, but you can use it on another. You have to sort of consider your whole property and all the different plants as a whole, and then start to just develop a plan and realize. Decide what you're willing to do. If you're willing to use herbicides, if you're willing to dedicate the time and the money, just sort of realizing the sacrifices that you're willing to make and developing a plan. And then the other thing, too, we talked about when we go out and look at sites for site potential, one of the things we look at is existing native plant communities. So if you have a, a heavy patch of, uh, let's say, um, Russian knapweed, um, 
well, that's one area. But if you have, you know, uh, inland saltgrass or some other na native species of grasses and forbs that are around that area that are surrounding it, well, if you were to control that population of Russian knapweed, you have a pretty good you have a pretty good chance of those species that the native species that are around it repopulating that site. So you want to look at the, the you want to look at the existing native vegetation that you have as well, and figure out okay how do I manage to favor the native plants at the same time stressing the non-native plants the things I don't want and then give that those native plants an advantage to take back that site take back that area. And some of those methods of stressing the um, non-natives, we've talked a little bit about this, but talk about some of the different methods. Well, in, here in the Taos Valley, one of the two of the biggest problems we have are two biannual thistles. You have scotch thistle, you have musk thistle. So those biannual thistles, um, they grow within two growing seasons. So the first growing season, they grow rosette. The second growing season, they send up, they bolt, they send up a shoot, they produce that purple flower on the end of it and then that plant dies so those plants don't spread by root they spread by seed so if you can get in and mechanically control dig up those rosettes early in the season before they bolt all you have to do is dig down about six or eight inches stick a shovel in break the tap root off and flip it up onto the surface of the soil that plant's done it's not coming back because it doesn't reproduce from the root so like Kaneo mentioned it depends on the plant you have to understand what you have to be able to identify it mm -hmm. you have to be able to understand the biology of it and then you have to understand how to manage how to use the its biology against it right so in other words what techniques work and what techniques don't work for that specific plant that you're trying to manage and and then again going back to the, some of the uh, changing the conditions like um, again at Rio Fernando Park we have worked really hard to raise the water table within the wetland so that we can basically drown out the non-natives. Um, in the upland area, we, uh, um, which was absolutely full of, of all the weeds, um, we've, we've, been, we've, we've planted a seed mixture to, to start holding that soil down and to cover that, that, that land and change the composition of the soil so that we have better conditions that will eventually lead to be to be able to be uh, native species. That's, that goes back to what I was saying: to understanding, understanding the biology of those plants that you're trying to get rid of, and then f favoring, doing things to favor the natives over the the non-natives. Mm -hmm. It's not just about removal; it's about then supporting the native plants to right. return to the area and preventing getting rid of the conditions where the invasive species thrived in. Through, through that restoration work, are there times when you would want to use a non-native species to aid in the ecological restoration? I think that you could. Uh, you have to look at what the plant, if that plant will then become an invasive species and harm the ecosystem. But I think that you can definitely use non-native species to an area to get rid of noxious weeds because the noxious weeds are far more harmful than, because just because it's not native to the area doesn't mean that it will be harmful necessarily. Right. Like, for instance, if you you have an area and you plant uh, Russian rye or uh, one of those cool season non-native grasses that are designed to grow throughout the winter, basically, um, to take over that site quickly, they produce seed, so they 
reseed the area and, and take over, but they're not they're not invasive. They're 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 a non-native plant, but they're not invasive. And then as time goes, you can once you stabilize that site, you start to improve the soil with organic matter and things like that. Well, then you can reseed in with with native grasses and native plants and and reestablish those native plant communities on top of those. So you're using a non-native as a tool to create the conditions for uh, for for natives to eventually come back. Correct. You're basically taking a introducing that species, a non-native species, uh, in order to it sort of takes the takes the place of those early successional species I was talking about within the serial stages of these ecosystems. You're introducing that. It takes over quickly. It grows quickly. You stabilize the site. And especially when it comes to soil, so much of it relates to soil health, um, that if you can get those in there, get them into the ground, get some organic matter started on, the, on a site that's deprived of it, that's going to help you reestablish those native plant communities. Um, I think within agriculture specifically, it's important to use because not a lot of agricultural crops are native to an area, but you can still use agricultural crops to... Um, reseed an area and to get rid of um, some of the noxious weeds. And what about animals, using animals to create better conditions? Uh, I think grazing is a method that can be used for uh, a lot of different weeds, but you do have to consider uh, certain plants are poisonous to livestock, um, to cattle specifically. So you have to consider what's on your property. Like on the Rio Fernando Park, for example, we have hound's tongue, which is poisonous to livestock, so we wouldn't necessarily want to release goats for grazing on a wide scale on the property would have to manage that very carefully. So I think you just have to consider the plants that you have, but um, grazing can be used as a method. And it's, it's one tool. So when you, when you talk about management, you're talking about integrated pest, IPM, integrated pest management. So an example would be down in the middle of Grand Valley when we do uh, work in the, along the Bosque for uh, salt cedar and Russian olive. We do a lot of mechanical removal, so they have a, a big excavator that comes in with a, a thumb deal on the end of it. It grabs that the whole tree and yanks it out of the ground as, a, as from the root crown. Um, what happens as a result is you the next the following growing season you end up having a lot of re-sprouts off those roots that you leave in the ground. Right. So um, what we'll do there is we'll turn the goats loose on those re-sprouts. We'll put them in there all through the summer months. And then at the end of the summer into the very first part of the fall, we'll remove those goats, let those re-sprouts grow up two, three, four feet, and then they'll come in and use a herbicide to actually treat. But you don't have to do broadcast. You can do it in smaller amounts and, you know, with a backpack sprayer and things like that. So the goats basically are eating those re-sprouts, making that plant use up its root reserves, stressing it. And then you're coming in and you're using the herbicide as a follow-up at the end. And so it's, it's using multiple tools right. on that particular problem. And at Rio Fernando Park, we have thus far really sought to avoid the use of, of herbicides um, and been successful so far with uh, um, hand removal of a lot of species, but also, again, changing the conditions. I mean, I mentioned it earlier, but we just want to avoid the herbicide use right now because of the river. We don't want to introduce any toxins into the river, especially in the fragile state that it's in. So that's the main reasoning behind the Tesla Trust not using herbicides. But it, like a combined and integrated method of removal is what will be best, I think, in the long run for keeping those plants 
contained and controlled. So it depends on the size too, right? If it's a smaller area that you, that you can work on and you have the manpower, then mechanical a lot of times will will do the trick. Right. So to conclude, what are some of the resources that people can use? We mentioned the Taos County Cooperative Weed Management Area um, and that folks can contact the Taos Soil and Water Conservation District. What are some of the other resources that people could look up if they're interested? Uh, Your local extension officers from NMSU. I know that that's a resource that I use a lot. And then you can just use the Internet. Just make sure that you're using like .org and legitimate websites because some people have some interesting methods that don't necessarily work. Um, and you want to just make sure you're that you're looking at a reliable source. But there are a lot of um, online resources for identifying and for removal methods. Yeah. Um, on our website, the Mexico Department of Agriculture mm-hmm. website, we have a, a publication called Troublesome Weeds in New Mexico. It's available uh, via download. Uh, so you can download it onto your phone. And it basically it's an identification guide of all the noxious weeds. So you can take that phone out in the field, uh, scroll through the PDF and help identify those, those noxious weeds. There's a whole oh, lot of resources. Cool. But mm-hmm. like Kaneo said, um, make sure you have your source. Right. There are some strange things out there. Yeah. As is always true on the internet, yes. right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we'll get um, some of uh, the stuff that Kaneo mentioned, uh, some of the work that she did on um, invasive identification at Rio Fernando Park. We'll get that up on the website, uh, including some of the maps so that people can see what that looks like and um, and have access to that. So that's at www.tauslandtrust.org. We uh, have to stop there. So Jim Wansell and, and Kenny O'Memor, um, thank you guys for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having thank us. We yeah, appreciate, appreciate it. it. You've been listening to the Rio Fernando Collaborative Speaker Series, recorded and produced by Jim O'Donnell, edited by Brett Tomadin. Recorded live at the studios of KNCE 93.5 FM True Taos Radio in Taos, New Mexico. For more information, visit www.riofernando.org. Thank you for joining us.